but touch Pictures came with touch A painter in my mind Tell me what you see A tourist in a dream A visitor it seems A half-forgotten song Where do I belong? That is Touch, Daft Punk, uh, playing the intro here for this afternoon's Living Writers Program on WCBN-FM Ann Arbor. I'm Amanda Yuli, sitting in for T. Hetzel all summer of 17, and we have uh, the book Touch featured today. Um, our guest author joining us via phone is Courtney Mom. Hello, Courtney. Hi. Thank you so much for having me. I feel like we're conducting this in outer space with that intro music. <laughs> <laughs> Me as well. It's somewhat fitting for the book, I suppose. Yeah. Um, <laughs> fits a little bit. Great choice. I, I normally ask people why they chose the song they chose, but I think we can skip that question. Um, the yeah. song, the song well, is touched. I mean, a little bit of a, uh, it was a little bit of a private joke between my husband and I because he's French and originally the epigraph to the book was from <laughs> the Daft Punk song. We both really, really love Daft Punk. Um, yeah. But it, I don't know. I mean, you, private jokes only go so far, kind of just between me and my husband. So um. <laughs> They're okay to, to bring out on this show. It's a perf- perfect venue for that. We have time to talk. <laughs> oh, good. Okay. <laughs> Thanks for joining us. Courtney, mom is a, a second time visitor to the Living Writers Program. You spoke with T. Hetzel um, when your first book was published. That's yes. right. Yeah, for I am having so much fun here without you. And I did. I had a lot of fun. <laughs> I, let, I came into the studio. It was really great. Yes. Uh, so we are in the studio here in Ann Arbor today, and Courtney is joining us via phone. Um, for those of us, uh, for those of our listeners who didn't hear that first show or who don't know your work yet, I'm going to read uh, a bit of your bio from your book um, and kind of get us started that way. Uh, Courtney Mom is the author of the novel, I Am Having So Much Fun Here Without You, and the chapbook Notes from Mexico. Um, her short fiction, book reviews, and essays on the writing life have been widely published in outlets such as the New York Times, Tin House, Electric Literature, and BuzzFeed. She's co-written films that have debuted at Sundance. At various points in her life, she's been a trend forecaster, a fashion publicist, and a party promoter for Corona Extra, which I need to ask about, clearly. <laughs> uh, she currently works as a product namer for MAC Cosmetics from her home in Connecticut. Um, and you are most recently the author of Touch. Yes. <laughs> yes. Um, before I ask you about the party promoting, which I'm going to yep. have to, um, and the beer, um, I wonder if you could give a really short synopsis, no, no plot giveaways necessary, but um, mm-hmm. tell our listeners about the new novel uh, if they haven't read it yet. Sure. So Touch, it's a, it's a dark comedy. It's a dark romantic comedy um, about a really famous trend forecaster named Sloane Jacobson, who is hired by a huge consumer goods company, um, so big it's called Mammoth, to help them predict trends um, in technology. And while she's working for them, she starts to feel like the next trends in technology are actually going to be, you know, no technology, um, a movement back toward face-to-face communication, even letter writing, you know, things are going to get a little analog. Um, That's what her famed instincts are telling her, but if she's honest about what she's feeling, she's going to lose her job and her professional reputation will be damaged. And um, this is all paired against a massive dumpster fire of her um, 
personal, you know, romantic life because her her partner, they're not married, but, you know, her her life partner, um, at the same time that she's having these sort of sentimental feelings about emotional connection, her partner Roman is going in the opposite direction and is coming out with an op-ed in the New York Times about the death of penetrative sex. Uh, so it's very much a story of a, a woman who's about to turn 40 who's revisiting um, the kind of lonely, solitary way that she's been living her very successful life. And it is a wonderful novel. It uh, <laughs> brings together um, so many of those things. I loved how um, at, at points the novel really flipped between um, some of the more the tech side, which uh, had some... I, I would say antiseptic moments of kind of mm. artificial, you know, stuff. And then there were these other moments uh, with Sloane's family in particular mm. that were uh, kind of cluttered and emotional and, and authentic um, in a different way. So you did such a great job of oh, thank you. <laughs> both of those things. Um, did you do that uh, kind of consciously? Was that yeah, definitely. I mean, it's, it's so interesting and, and flattering, actually, that you use the word cluttered because... Um, Sloane's family home, which appears quite a bit in the book, is frequently described as really cluttered and over-furnished. And I did want to draw a very stark contrast um, between this sleek place that she works where everything is up to code and very clean and antiseptic, and then her, her, her you know, life partner as well, who is deathly afraid of germs and whatnot, and then her mom's house where there's all these Tupperwares molding with leftovers, and, you know, it, it's, uh, a, it's, it's visceral, it's, yeah. It's right, good. there's a lot of potpourri, and, and her sister has all these babies, and it's just, you know, it's not, it's not like hoarders live there, but it's a messy place, and just like, you know, she has a messy emotional life, but, you know, Sloane's a famous per person. She's wealthy. So if you see her from the outside, you're going to think that there's no mess in her life. And um, I think, yeah, one part she talks about her apartment in Paris, which is all white, and there's just nothing in it, really. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, that was a, a great um, feature of the book. I think, you know, clearly in a, in a book like this, uh, there's so much about the sense of touch and the sense of physicality. Um, but I was really impressed at... Um, all the other kind of senses that the reader is confronted with. I feel like you did some very well described meals and some, you know, the, I remember the Clorox wipe down of one apartment. Like it, there were some uh, really uh, powerful kind of sensory things happening throughout the book. Oh, um, thank you. Yeah. Uh, well, scent, scent is hard to describe, but especially in a book about trends, people don't, people don't think about this very often, but scent work is really, really important part of trends. You know, it, it, it touches upon um, the beauty and hygiene products that we use. If you think about how popular herbal essences was, right. um, a lot of it had to do with that odor that was so fruity and just took things over. And, and now these days you have this big trend in um, scent branding where you'll go to hotels and people's lobbies you know, are cued to smell like lemongrass or a campfire or whatever it is, and that kind of becomes um, a trademark of, of the hotel or the spa or, you know, what, whatever it is. Mm -hmm. and, um, and the perfume industry and all these things, even, even like skincare products. If you think a lot of people, I mean, maybe our generation not so much anymore, but, but like Pond's face cream. Oh, right. Whenever I smell that, uh -huh. like I just think of my mom. I'm pretty sure I put 
I think the mother in the story, has, Margaret, has uh-huh. a Pond's face cream moment. <laughs> I think uh, Noxima would be another. Oh, Noxima, sure. Another one of the, maybe of the same era, maybe, maybe slightly. Yeah, like I was, I was in a hotel the other, the other day on book tour, and they had Paul Mitchell Awapui, and I was uh-huh. literally, I was like, oh, my God, it's the early 90s. I'm living at my dad's house with my best friend Rebecca over, and we're like, taken about like that was the shampoo that for me defines my middle school year that was big yeah Yeah. (laughs) and those smells are really evocative um in a way i i was really fascinated a moment ago when you started talking about hotel lobbies that that purposefully smell a certain way um i'd love to hear you talk a little bit more about that because i think for me, you know, I don't, I don't think about that, and I probably yeah. am smelling lemongrass in some hotels, but it's, it's unconscious, and I think for a lot of consumers, um, it is. But can you talk about the well, conscious? I mean, you might, you might be getting used to it because so many people are doing it now that it's sort of become this expected thing. Much like a lot of times, you go to any level of restaurant these days, and they'll ask you if you want still or sparkling water because everyone has the kind of soda streams, whereas, bef- mm-hmm. I don't know, not that long ago, you weren't given that option unless you were pretty high in a, uh, in a high-end restaurant. Um, I mean, mm-hmm. this is my personal experience. But the, the scent branding thing, especially in hotel lobbies, I don't, I don't know how long ago it started exactly, um, because I personally live in the woods, and so my forays into urban centers are not what they used to be when I lived in like Paris or New York or whatever, but um, I would say it probably started around 2000 and, let's see, I don't know, 11 or something. It's probably Mm -hmm. been five or six years. Um, And my personal opinion, and I mean, I don't have like data on this, but I think that it went hand in hand with the runaway success of diptyque candles which kind of became the iconic brand of these high-end candles that were, you know, the de rigueur thing to give or mm-hmm. to receive at, at holidays. Um, and they have, they're French, and they really do have an incredible scent. And there was one candle in particular called Feu de Bois, which they still make, and it's, Feu de Bois is, is basically campfire. It's their campfire scent, which launched a thousand chips and a thousand imitators. Um, uh-huh. No one's really nailed their specific campfire scent and so people started burning them at like i don't know dinner parties which is weird normally you don't want scent at a dinner party but or book clubs or um Mm -hmm. i had a friend who traveled a lot for conde nast she worked for conde nast and she would pack two travel size ones with her everywhere she went it just sort of became like wow women especially were engulfing Uh themselves in this in the scent, um, and 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 then another really smoky um, fragrance came into the kind of I don't know the zeitgeist, which was uh, Santal Thirty Three, um, which is still really popular. And and I don't know. I I this is generalizing a little bit, but I started noticing that hotel lobbies and restaurants and things like that they were um, either using something quite citrusy like a lemongrass or a grapefruit mm-hmm. or they were using whatever imitation of the feu de bois and some people were, you know a lot of people were actually diptyque and these other brands were consulting with the hotels to come up with a signature 
fragrance that they just pump into the elevators. They pump in through the ceilings. Normally, they don't do it in rooms because so many people have fragrance sensitivities. Right. Um, and then, you know, there's yoga studies, studios that, that um, use this kind of a signature scent. There's cer- certainly spas. Um, uh, and it's funny because it's a real throwback to what perfume originally was, which which was, I mean, more or less someone would light a fire, like, just go with me on this. Of course, they didn't have Weber grills in the, in the Middle Ages, but basically they would light, like, a Weber grill uh-huh. with all this pot free, and then you were just supposed to walk through it, you know, and let it kind of... Oh, okay. Um, Permeate your, your, you know, yeah. your wig and then <laughs> your clothing was supposed to sort of, it, it literally took on, like if you ever go to a, a restaurant where they cook on the table, right, like a Japanese mm-hmm. or perhaps mm-hmm. a Mongolian, and it's like, it's kind of the one cuisine that's impossible to not leave with your, your clothes and hair smelling, <laughs> yes. like the oils that they use, this is a similar thing, but you actually stood in the smoke. So if you imagine standing in the smoke coming off of a charcoal grill, um, and so to perfume is perfume, so it means through smoke, literally. Oh, um, wow. So it's just interesting that this um, through smoke has become trendy again. You actually sort of live, or, you know, surround yourself quite literally with these these scents. Um, and it is very kind of, I, I don't want to say it's anti-tech, but when you think about the internet, there's so much that's visual and so much that's auditory, um, but smells, we don't have smell of vision. It's the holy grail. Yet. Yeah. I mean, it's the holy grail. No, it really is because yeah. scent, um, again, I don't have the ratio or the numbers, but scent is, it makes up like something crazy, like 67% of sexual attraction. So even though online dating is such the norm now and um, people keep in contact with their friends and family through social media, there's no one has nailed the scent element. And from what I've heard, it's still pretty far off. I mean, we're going to have self-driving cars, you know, on the daily before anyone, I did a lot of research for this book and, and there are, quite a few people trying things out in Asia, but it, 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 like, you basically have to put yourself inside of a crazy apparatus, inside of a cat. Like, it's stuff? not, it's, yeah. um, no one's got it yet. And, and, and oddly, people don't, they don't, journalists, you know, tech journalists and reporters don't write about this very often, at least not, not what I've seen. I mean, I'll admit that I've been staying offline a lot, because I'm trying to stay sane in, mm-hmm. in this current, <laughs> um, well regime, done. Yeah. But, yeah, but um, but when I was al- online a lot, I, I just uh, was always interesting to see that people were writing a lot. Like, the, when are when are the self driving cars coming? How close are we to having that? How close are we to having that? But I don't see a lot about um, scent recognition. There's a lot about facial recognition and things like that. Um, your gesture activated uh, technology, yes. but yes. but scent. And that's why, you know, we're talking about scent and nostalgia earlier. That's why, as long as you, you know, know the name of a brand or something, but, you know, if I say cold cream or campfire or things like this, most people can conjure up what that smells like. And it's an incredibly emotional connection that you you can't, you just can't get. Words aren't enough. I mean, you... 
It, you can't look. So... You can't FaceTime with someone, and they say something like, "Oh, I'm. I just found this old bottle of white linen, you know, perfume <laughs> of my mother." It's like, it's not the same as actually can't smelling that iconic, iconic '90s right. perfume. Mm. Which, especially me being from Connecticut, that to me is like <laughs> the Connecticut experience. <laughs> Um, you're reminding me a lot about sort of the difference between um, a trend that you may be able to forecast or others may be able to see into the future of what uh, what will happen um, and the difference between that and kind of what's missing because it almost sounds like this isn't something we're going to figure out how to how to replicate scents and, and carry them. Do you, do you think that's true? Did I no, I think right? it'll be figured out. You They'll think figure it, will? it out. It's just, I think it's just going to be clunky and really embarrassing and something that no one's going to want to use much like google glass right it like seemed kind of exciting but at the same time you were a little embarrassed for everyone kind of crudely done yeah and it's just they came to market too early it needs to be sleeker it needs to be less um obvious so i think and again i i'm sure there's people working on it right now i mean i'm absolutely sure i just i don't think it's a consumer facing reality yet and won't be for a long time but um They'll get there. However, when they do get there, then, like, life is over because <laughs> exactly, exactly. <laughs> then you really almost don't need to see people in person anymore. Um, yeah. That's the cool thing about when you finally do get together with a friend or, you know, when Sloane finally sees her mother after three years in the book and they hug, you know, she she smells her mom's hair and, and whatever moisturizing products she's been using, mm-hmm. but she also kind of sees how much slower she's walking than she used to and 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 she feels her body in the hug and it's a very it's a great moment yeah Um, yeah so i don't know i mean with holograms and everything i don't know how close they are to having you know you have like a conference call and all of your colleagues are actually there with you but they're holograms but do they smell the way they smell (laughs) you i don't know that will be the test that's when you're coming back for the third time on the living writer show uh, to talk about that is that is that a date Uh, this is the living writer show on wcbn fm ann arbor i'm your host amanda yuley we're talking with courtney mom who's author of touch and and other novels and writing. Um, Courtney, we're going to play the next song that you chose for us uh, for a little song break. It's Blind Repetition. on the Living Writers Show with Courtney Mom. Uh, will you tell us why you chose that song? I love that song. Um, that was a song, I used to live in France, and I, I, Octet, was, I was a big fan, and we used to see them in concert. 
and I don't that was my favorite song for I don't know all of 2003 and then I kind of I think my iPod died <laughs> and I don't use like Spotify or Pandora or anything I'm very old-fashioned with I just you know my husband takes care of the DJing and so um and then I somehow got my iPod to it like resurrected itself a couple years ago <laughs> nice and I discovered that song again and um this was when I was writing the book and it really to me I think that it's got some robotic sounds in the back but the woman's voice first of all, has kind of an unplaceable accent. And my book is somewhat international, so I liked that. And it, to me, just seemed like Sloane's struggle between the cold, um, efficient tech world and the kind of yearning um, messiness of the human world. Yeah. What you were saying before about the... um kind of resurrecting a song from your past. Mm. It reminds me of resurrecting the smells from our past. I mean, you know, yeah. anybody will say when you hear a song that you last listened to oh, when yeah. you were 16, um, you feel like you're 16 for a moment. Um, but I don't think it's as po- as powerful as that is. It's probably not as powerful as um, smell and as touch and some of the other things. Do you agree? I, well, I don't know. I think songs can be pretty powerful, especially if if you're playing them really loudly in the car. Right, okay. <laughs> Fair enough. And I like, I, I, when I hear certain songs that now I'm like ashamed, but I, whatever, I grew up in the 80s and 90s, like Dave Matthews will come on once in a while on the radio, and I am just transported back to my, you know, high school boyfriend's car and his the terrible vanilla tree that he had. <laughs> um, back to those, scent, yeah. Exactly, right? yeah, so it's kind of both at it's one time. Everything. Yeah. And like back to the Dave Matthews loving days and that terrible, terrible vanilla tree. <laughs> <laughs> so I have to ask you about um, this character whose career has something in common with yours um, in trend forecasting. Um, it seems like, and this is what seems so foreign to me, um, is that there is a sense of living in the future, of, of always thinking ahead and yeah. thinking of, mm-hmm. of the next thing. I feel like, you know, sometimes I'm culturally kind of in the 90s myself, or I just sort of haven't caught up to things. Um, and it's very foreign for me to imagine a life like that. And I wonder if you thought that through with your character, if you felt like oh, yeah. uh, you, you lived that way, or whether that was just work, and then in your sort of time off, you were in the moment. So that's a really interesting question. Um, when you do the work that Sloane Jacobson is doing, you are always living in the future. Um, and it's harder to do than it used to be because now everything is so present, you know, with mm-hmm. everything, Twitter, Instagram, Snapchat, every, everything is coming at you like you're living everyone's current moment. And trend forecasting now rarely goes out beyond like three weeks i mean it's it's just insane you you when i was working in trend forecasting in the early aughts um of course we had the internet but it was it was mostly like you used it to do some research you know and like maybe email college friends but it wasn't what it is today like your social life wasn't really wrapped up in it and um you lived mostly without it Instead mm-hmm. of today, it's opposite. You mostly live with it. And when you're without it, it feels a little like you're not on oxygen or something. <laughs> um, and, and, but when, when we were working in the arts, we were, we were working on projects that were like 20 years out. We were really far ahead. And nowadays, everyone, when you think of trends, like you think of trend spotters who, who are really just identifying things that are already happening, like 
they'll look out for hashtags that are trending. It's not mm-hmm. the same thing as forecasting. So when, and there's not a lot of people who are really, really great trend forecasters. I mean, there's under 10, I would say, in the, in the whole world, you know, that people in the industry can name by name. Mm-hmm. And um, they're really, really looking far out, recognizing desi- desires and changes and emotions. It's way before anyone else. And it's really not, it has very little to do with fashion. Of course, it will touch upon fashion, but mm-hmm. trend forecasting is really about desire, you know, what people want and what what happiness and success is going to look like. So um, to answer your question about what it was like to write a book with a character whose mind and heart is always in the future, it was, it was really hard because I already have kind of a bad tendency to start books like with characters who kind of know everything already or mm, they're, mm-hmm. you know, I mean, I write dark humor. So a lot of times the voice is a bit cynical. Um, but in this story, I really had to push myself to write, first of all, an optimistic cynic. Okay. Yes. Because <laughs> Sloan has to be optimistic to do her job, but she's at a point where she's feeling quite cynical about the world in which she lives. And then I had to do just, I don't know, 27 different drafts. Once I knew what the book was about, forget all the other drafts, um, just to not have everything up front. Because, you know, I started the story a couple of times with the predictions that we discover later in the mm-hmm. version that is published today. And when everything was up front, it was like, okay, well, that's interesting, but why should I keep reading? You know, you, it's more fun to discover. Um, she learns, yeah. Yeah, I, discover things with the character. So I really had to push the, the fiction pedal kind of full force because in reality, if Sloan Jacobson was a real person, she would have already known everything by the time she's leaving Paris, you know, the, the first page. Mm-hmm. Um, but because that's just how people in the industry, they know. They don't just sort of, I mean, yes, they will have these slow epiphanies, but I had to really design a world in which she's thinking slower than she would um, if it were nonfiction. Mm-hmm. You talk about uh, a few moments where she has a very physical feeling of mm. um, premonition, I guess, is, is one word for it, but, but where she just knows. And it, you know, she feels flushed and maybe dizzy. I can't remember the full yeah, description, but yeah. um, it really is a body experience when she feels this conviction about something in the future. Is that how you experienced um, your work? Is it, is that yeah, kind of, I did yeah? kind of, I would get these, I don't know, I'd be like, out to dinner or something and someone would say one thing like it could be a word it could be a place that they had just visited and like everything would kind of go dim and it it was almost like I don't know I was dancing in a dark stage or something with this Mm -hmm. one thing and everything else fell away and I would want to run home and start writing about it and looking up images um you know, it's a, yeah, it's a, it is exciting. You get kind of this tingly thing. I don't know. I don't know if it, it's like that for other people that work in the industry. I actually never. I didn't talk to any other trend forecasters when I was writing this, other than the ones that I had worked for. But I didn't, you know, talk to them again for this book. I just sort of recalled my experience working under them. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, sort of I mean, a light bulb that, moment uh, that you describe is very powerful. Um, and kind of mysterious, I think, to people who are not in that field. Um, right. I mean, because it's impossible to, you know, oh, how do you know? How do you, how do, like, how do you predict trends? It's 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 really, 
is especially if it's something really far out. I mean, it's 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 actually pretty easy if you know fall um, fall of two thousand fall of two thousand seventeen is like whatever long skirts or something. Then uh-huh. a year later there'll be short skirts. It's always opposites, always. Right. You know, right now we're having a very um, 90s club scene thing in makeup. Mm-hmm. So probably by next spring, it's going to be the bare face again. Mm-hmm. Just simple, simple, you know, maybe even like an oily look. I don't know. But it won't be this sort of garish club makeup um, that yeah. you see on Instagram and stuff. I mean, that's, you know, that's what I think. It's just opposites, but It just sort of flips. Often. Yeah. Is trend for- forecasting... Um competitive it's again it strikes me uh from reading your book and from reading about it that uh trend forecasters would be very proprietary about what they are predicting oh, and what yeah. they know. i mean yeah. i i've been out of it for so long and when i did work in it i was in um i was at a very small boutique agency but like i mean this woman owns the beauty space that was her specialty mm-hmm. and then there was a dutch trend forecaster who owned sort of the home um mm-hmm. home goods furniture um, and then there would be a woman for fashion. It was mostly, I've not, never known a male trend forecaster, actually. Um, That's interesting. And, I, you know, they're cults of personality. I mean, most of these agencies are, are headed by a woman, normally, the mm-hmm. big ones. Um, and often they carry that woman's name. Um, and then there are other, there are other agencies um, that they'll do more consulting and stuff but the the there it's it's sort of a guru thing because a lot a lot of times some people have asked me sometimes is it the chicken before the egg i mean it is possible that you have a woman come like lee edelcourt who is a, a, a very famous probably the world's most famous uh, trend forecaster um striking striking woman and she speaks in these enigmas um in a very poetic but very commanding manner and she has these symposiums um that people pay a lot of money to go to and she sort of like you know is putting down the tablets of like what the trends mm-hmm. are going to be in the upcoming years and there, there is a cult of personality around her that is such that what she says could come to be just because people end up doing it because she because she said so telling right? them to yeah um I think but you know and yeah. that 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 is a possibility and then and then sometimes these people are just really right you know and they see things uh-huh. before other people do yeah it's fascinating it's fascinating to think about uh the the careers the few careers there are in that field uh being something that um is kind of an innate uh destiny for someone or whether it's something I mean, did you train for your career in that? In no, I didn't. Just did it. I ended up working in it um, simply because I was fluent in French and English, and I was just in the right place at the right time. I I started off at a, an agency called Nelly Rodi, um, translating their trend books, which are these massive, massive, very expensive industry guides to the trends for the next two years in, in you know, whatever, um, color, mm-hmm. in fashion, in fabric. And... I was translating the books, and then they needed someone to sell them at the conferences, and so they brought me to sell them, and then I started realizing, like, I kind of, I don't know, I just sort of, this all makes sense to me, and, like, I could spin off and kind of imagine where the trends would go after that, and then it was the same, I didn't, I didn't do much aside from selling and translating there, but then I was pulled into, like, a consumer focus group at another 
trend forecasting agency called Alchemy in Paris, mm-hmm. and just simply because they needed a, a, an English speaker to kind of moderate the group, mm-hmm. and the woman just, honestly, maybe she was just super desperate, or maybe she liked <laughs> me, I don't really know, but she just like told me to come back the next day and I didn't I thought maybe I was just going to be a coffee girl but yeah I ended up it was just me and her for like <laughs> until we drove each other crazy <laughs> like a couple years yeah well it all sounds kind of magical I think you did you yeah I mean it was a it's it's a it's um it's a really fascinating world. I mean, you're definitely living in a, but it, especially in France. I don't. I only worked for one place in the states, and it was based in. Um, it was based out in Seattle, and so we worked mostly with, the, you know, like Microsoft, and and that was, that was so much more corporate. You know, we were doing PowerPoints, and it was totally different. Whereas my experience in France was mostly going and seeking out you know, the right texture of food to serve people and That's candles and we would have parties with no just... lights <laughs> yeah. on and it was so sensual and right. there was always champagne at 11 in the morning because it was yeah. just, it was like hyper, hyper, hyper creative. Wait, they don't um, do that at Microsoft? I have... <laughs> no. <laughs> I mean, I think I got like a burrito once or something, but no, no, there wasn't. There, there, you know, it's all it's all non-disclosure forms and stuff. It's just a totally, totally different. And yeah. and the way, like my husband would come. Um, this is he would film a lot of the consumer sessions that we did at these agencies in France, and because mm-hmm. he's a filmmaker, and then they would turn them, you know, they turn them into corporate videos for whoever the client was. And you watch these things, and it's com- you're so entranced. The way that these people talk. So they had a man, um, they had the head of Berluti, I think it is. It's a very, very expensive Italian footwear company. And it, it, their leathers are just ridiculous. They're like marbled. And, the, and then there, there was someone from Chanel. And it, the whole, it was a whole focus group on just texture. And it was eight hours of just drinking champagne and these people talking about texture. But it's not... Um, <laughs> Sounds indulgent. You know how, like, in the United States, people... When they get excited, they talk a lot and quite quickly. They were like so, you know, speaking like this and making these grand statements like, you know, the sheen of your shoe is the gleam of your soul or something. <laughs> and like, but you just bought it. I don't know. I love rewatching these videos. They're in, totally enchanting. <laughs> sounds very uh, magical again. Yeah. Um, this is the Living Writers Program on WCBN-FM Ann Arbor. We're talking to Courtney Mom, author of Touch, and we are going to hear another song briefly. And then when we come back, we're going to talk more about uh, research you did for the book. I have, I have questions about that mm-hmm. um, and self-driving cars and lots of other things. Uh, let's hear Abrasive.
And that was um, Rat-a-Tat with Abrasive. This is a Living Writer Show on WCBN-FM. Uh, we're talking to Courtney Mom about her book, Touch. Uh, we're talking about uh, technology and physical touch and trend forecasting and uh, all the things that went into this book. Courtney, I'm sure that you did lots of research um, beyond your own career in trend forecasting uh, for the novel. I have two specific questions, though. I'd, mm-hmm. I'd love to know if you've been in a self-driving car. Um, and I have to know if you did anything um, in a cuddle cafe, because the, those, are, those are coming to, <laughs> to the fore. I've read about yeah. them many times um, before in your book. I um, have never been in a self-driving car. You no. haven't? No, I haven't. That's um, surprising. I Have you? <laughs> no, but, you know, in, um, in the Detroit area, the, the uh, auto industry is really really focused on self-driving cars. Yeah. Um, I got, went to part of the uh, Detroit Auto Show this year, and it was um, it was shocking <laughs> how much that was the focus. I mean, it really is um, the next thing, and I feel like... Oh, uh, yeah, 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 yeah. No, I haven't yeah. been in one. I, I just sort of watched a lot of videos and uh-huh. read a lot of art. Mostly was looking for what's wrong with them and, like, funny anecdotes about uh-huh. how they can't differentiate between a, um, a sidewalk and a road and that's like, dangerous <laughs> I didn't know that. you know funny funny stories like that um uh-huh. and then I have never been to a cuddle cafe uh-huh. um and in fact when I started writing this book three years ago and was writing about the professionalization of affection and the, the idea that people would start going to professionals to be hugged uh-huh. um that wasn't happening yet. And then uh, my agent, I think at some point last year, called me and she's like, oh my God, there's a New York Times article about, you know, professional huggers. Mm-hmm. And I was so upset. <laughs> I was like, oh God, we got to get this book out really, you know, <laughs> earlier than planned. Like everything's going to come true. Mm-hmm. But um, I did interview the sort of head of the professional hugging movement, a woman named Samantha Hess, when I was in Oregon, um, she did an event at Powell's with me in Portland. Um, Cuddle Up to Me was pretty much the first, you know, professional cuddling business set up in the United States. That's her business name? Cuddle Up to Me. Uh Uh-huh, uh-huh. Um, yes, I I wondered whether uh, it was a chicken or an egg thing, as you say, whether you had written about it first or, or whether it was starting to, to happen. I mean, it must have been, sta- you know, yeah. it was probably starting, but hers hers really was the first sort of LLC that was established. Mm-hmm. And I understand um, that that's growing. I mean, I, I read about it. Her business, she's got like an eight studio office now. So she's hired different practitioners. And in Brooklyn, there's a bunch of people doing it. Um, yeah, no, it's a big, it's a, it's a real thing for sure. Oh, it's a real thing. Yeah. And people yeah. shouldn't like, it's so, I think it's just the word cuddle is like, but it, 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 people really shouldn't make fun of it because it, it, it brings, um, a tremendous amount of healing and reassurance to, to the people who, who need it. And there's something, it's funny. We were talking during this event in Portland about like, there's such, I mean, Obviously, there's a t- some taboos around sex work, but it's like, oh, all right, well, something happened. You know, he went to see a mm-hmm. prostitute. But, like, there's a, I think there's a bigger taboo around, oh, I went to see a professional hug- hugger. I think you might be right, yeah. People just think it's so, I, it just, there's something so embarrassing about admitting, like, forget you sex. Like, I just don't get yeah. enough affection mm-hmm. in my life, which is, honestly, most people's problem, especially these days. You know, you might... 
you might have um, a spouse or someone you come home to and share a bed with night. So in, in theory, you're getting physical affection, or maybe you have kids or a dog, and you're getting some sort of tactile um, um, uh, communication during your day. But that, like, a lot of people, especially really busy people with families, are not like how often you know the people listening. How often does someone in your life just stop and say? Hey, how are you? Like, you kind of look like you need a, a hug, and and it never happens. <laughs> like, and I mean, maybe people have really you know, awesome friends, but it's really rare, right. and and um, it's very moving. I read a lot of this. Samantha Hess actually wrote a book called Touch, and um, and compiled a lot of research about skin hunger, and it was incredibly moving to read. Um, and you know, touch therapy isn't just skin to skin, human to human contact. They're doing a lot now with equine therapy, with horses and mm-hmm. with um, animals, emotional support animals, um, especially for the elderly, bringing in cats. Their, their animals have a, can have like very slow heartbeats sometimes, and especially horses. Mm-hmm. And so it's incredibly calming just like physiologically to be around um, animals. Oh, of course. It's powerful. Yeah. Um, do, so how do you think we got to this point where, where people need this? And it's an, it's an articulated need that's beginning to be met in the world. I mean, have we always um, had the need or has our world changed a little bit so that people... Oh, I think the world's definitely... I think it's smartphones. Yeah. Um, because if, <laughs> the first thing to go with eye contact, right? So, uh-huh. like, I don't know how... 10 years ago, let's see, that would have been... Uh, no, maybe more. 12 or 13 years ago, you go to meet a friend, whatever. You're going to, to dinner. You're meeting her outside of a pizza restaurant. Well, what? You'd show up and she'd just sort of be waiting there. Maybe she's reading a magazine that she had in her bag or she's just sort of mm-hmm. watching the world go by, right? But she probably wasn't looking, I don't know, in 2004 or something like down at her flip phone, no. at how fascinating it was, right? So she's watching the world go by, and then when you arrive, what happens? You hug, and you just talk to each other and maintain eye contact. And no one's going to call about you. Whatever, like, are and, we sure yeah. we want to go to this restaurant? Yeah, and you maintain eye contact. Now, today, you show up. This person will be looking down at their phone, at whatever world is happening in their phone. And they're probably, you know, most often, maybe they see something like, oh, great, on Instagram. Like, oh, well, there was a dinner party I wasn't invited to. That sucks. Or if you're a writer, they're like, oh, God, all right. Well, that prize I thought I might get went to... You're seeing a lot of negative stuff, right? And you're not seeing the world in front of you. And then so you, as a person who's coming to see that person for dinner, well, what message are you getting? You're getting, like... Oh, well, they're looking at their phone. And uh, and so often you'll just watch people around you. This happens all the time. That person will arrive and take out their phone. So they say hi, these p- people hug, and then what? Eyes are normally right back into the phone. Are we sure we want to go to this restaurant? Let me check my phone. Maybe there's another best. And mm-hmm. the eye contact isn't there anymore. And once the eye contact goes, I think that the physical contact started to go. And, um, you know, it's a... It's a muscle. I mean, affection is kind of a muscle, and if you mm-hmm. stop using it, you forget how to do it, and then it just seems really weird to, like, maintain eye contact with people. It seems really weird to reach out and touch someone on the arm because right. no one else is doing it. And so I think we've just had this tactile breakdown over the past 10 years um, where people are just completely out of practice with it. And, and 
so everyone's just looking at their phones and that. I mean, it's so rude, but everyone does it. <laughs> it's if so you really rude. step back and think about it, it's completely absurd. I mean, would I like you wouldn't? I wouldn't go out to dinner with you, and in the middle of a sentence, just call my mom or something, right? <laughs> right. But people don't think that much of. You're talking to me at dinner. I pick up my phone and I'm like, uh huh, uh huh, uh huh. You know, multitasking. Right. It's just in the, the etiquette is 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 absurd. It is just. <laughs> I mean, and I I I honestly think that it's partly our relationship with smartphones and our, our abysmal etiquette with with digital communication that's allowed you know Donald Trump to be president. I agree with you. Yes, we've lost uh, that humanity. You know, we've become, yeah. Lo- well, we're looking at our phones. They're just not listening anymore yeah. because at any one point, someone's doing seven other things on their phone. And of course, in your mind, I just recently had to remove all the notifications off of my phone because the irony of having a book out about trying to stay human in the digital age is that. When you're Everybody promoting a book, you have to be online and, all yeah, the time, right? right? And it was just, I just didn't feel happy anymore. So I got rid of all of my notifications because I was noticing that I'd be driving around and all compartmentalized in my head. I'd have a to-do list for, like, Instagram and Twitter and, oh, that person wrote me via Facebook. Okay, so i got to write her. And, it, mm-hmm. it, it, like, it, I needed an Excel sheet to manage my, my social, my online social life and it was so it felt incredibly necessary and then once I got rid of all my notifications I realized it's actually not necessary at all like people (laughs) are going to survive if I don't respond with the right emoji to their you know comment on my Instagram they are going to get through the day yeah yeah I don't think emojis help either I I think that that uh that's part of uh part of the problem but I love the way you phrased that eye contact kind of went first because that went a long time ago um, oh yeah, uh, but that's and true. it's funny. I've, I've I've talked to people who, um, especially in like academia or what, who who interview people a lot, and they're like the one the thing like these these kids come, you know, young people in their twenties or maybe they're still in um, whatever high school internship, and they've got everyone's got amazing resumes, just amazing resumes, and uh, they cannot maintain eye contact. They feel so uncomfortable maintaining eye contact, like they're jonesing for their phones. Um, And, you know, they're relatively well-spoken, but they just can't maintain eye contact. Yeah. I I run a tutoring center for for young people. And one of the things I think we're teaching young people is how to just interact with an adult and how to look at Mm -hmm. them and have a conversation. And, um, yeah, the the challenge then is making sure the adults are on the same page and doing the same stuff, which is uh, it's a new thing for our world. Uh, We're going to hear one more tune. And then um, I want to talk to you when we come back from hearing uh, Going Home. Um, I want to hear about the most unusual character in your book, the character of um, Anastasia. So we'll, we'll, we'll talk about her after going home.
star-stained heights on bent and battered wings in search of mythical kings mythical kings that's going home by dory previn today we're uh, joined by Courtney Mom on the Living Writers Show, WCBN FM, Ann Arbor. I'm Amanda Yuli, and we're talking about the novel Touch with Courtney. Thanks for joining us, Courtney. Oh, my pleasure. Um, so, in the book, and we, we've had this nice long conversation about uh, sort of your feelings on technology and, and your feeling that um, uh, that touch and physicality is an important thing that we're losing in the world. Um, and yet, one of the most powerful characters in your book. Um, is a self-driving car with a personality, um, yep. <laughs> which I just sort of loved kind of the um, humor in that and the, the sense of inevitability that Sloan kind of submits to that, even even with her feelings like yours and, and like mine, that uh, humans are important. Um, she kind of has this bond with, I mean, I'm calling the car a character. I'd, I'd love to Don't know if, a if you, it's her you're best great. Friend. How did you pull that off? Yeah, it is her best friend. How did you pull yeah. that off? Um. How did I pull it off? Well, I, I don't. If you say I pulled it off, I pulled it off. Um, you pulled it off, yeah. How did um, How did you approach it? I mean, that, well, that's I mean, a car. From a from a um, just like a logistical standpoint, the idea of her being assigned a driverless car came first because mm-hmm. um, I was thinking, all right, what are this woman's perks? And I had this scene where she arrives at the airport, and there was sort of an escort from the company there, and I was I was like, this is. This is very kind of old-fashioned. Like, what what would someone really in her... And then I thought, no, well, she, there would be a driverless car. And, like, you know, she'd know where to find a driverless car. And, and then I just started writing that scene, and all of a sudden, I don't know why, I was like, her name will be Anastasia, and she will maybe be, like, Russian. And, and, um, and in the beginning, it was just sort of funny, and a, it, it was a company perk, but then... Then as I started writing the the novel, I realized, wait, this is actually a really wonderful opportunity because the main character is going to be spending so much time in this company vehicle. She's she's obligated in her contract to drive around. It's called the M car, the mammoth car. Mm-hmm. She's obligated to be seen in it and to drive everywhere in it, even though she wants to walk to work, but she, she's not allowed to. So I thought, all right, well, she's going to be in this car all the time, and the car is trying to please her, and the car will be talking to her, but the car also has all these... Um, biometric sensors so Sloan can walk around and tell her colleagues oh I'm fine but her car can sense when her heart rate is elevated when she's dehydrated when she's had too much to drink when her when she's anxious the car knows so quite quickly I realized like oh this person is actually well I'm just gonna say person is the (laughs) one who's in the Uh best position to get her to be honest about her feelings Um, because especially with her family, the sort of passive aggressiveness is so ingrained after so many, like 15 years of sort of unhealthy communication skills. Um, it makes sense that, you know, you, you have this computer who doesn't have the social grace to, to, to think, oh, maybe she doesn't want to be asked if she's depressed. So instead, she, you know, but she's just like, oh, your heart rate's like, your heart rate's incredibly fast today. Are you anxious? Yeah. You know, people aren't that blunt in real life, but her car is. And then she, and then 
Sloan in the beginning will lie, and then her car will say, oh, the tone of voice you're using is higher <laughs> than the one you used. Or, you know, so you are lying, but you know, I, will, yeah. I now understand not to ask you any more questions. And like she can't. It's almost a lie detector. It's a, a yeah. mobile lie detector. And it's kind of like the um, friends we wish we, we had, right? The ones that are really paying attention. And, yeah. Um, no, She exactly. makes coffee, right? Yeah, yeah. And I think I haven't really Does, thought about it that way, but yeah. I think it also was a little bit of a call to arms to people to, to be a little bit more blunt with their friends and mm-hmm. not let these things pass. You know, like if someone sees a little off, like maybe ask them about it. Um, because our lives are so curated now with our online personas where if you don't pay attention to your friends and family you can be mistaken in thinking that everything is great except you know obviously there's people who only post negative things but most people post only wonderful glowing things and so you make the mistake of thinking that they everything's great but it's mm-hmm. never great people you know people always need to be checked in with and then the other thing about Anastasia is I wanted her to be um a little bit of a hat tip to the tech industry, um, a way of saying, like, you've made some incredible products and um, allowed people to connect all over the world. Um, mm-hmm. Incredible leaps and bounds have been made, and you know, especially in the medical industry. And this is not at all a book about, like, everyone turn against technology and pick up your pens. You know, no, it's just it, a, does, it doesn't read that way. Yeah. Yeah. But, uh, it's just, you know, a little bit of a call to arms. Car. Like, let's stay human first and you know well the car is more human than some of the people which is maybe uh what you meant to do um we're near the end of our hour here but i have to ask you about a few uh pointed ann arbor michigan references in the book have you uh so you you, deirdre is from ann arbor um and then of course the the davy rothbart thing which i had to look up because i didn't realize that davy uh wrote that article but that's a, a real thing and he's a real ann arborite too oh is he from ann arbor oh that's amazing he, yeah. i didn't know that oh, oh that's very, so funny very much from ann arbor yeah and you know what i, I had like wow that's a, that's funny i didn't know that yeah so i wonder if he knows that that article's in there <laughs> I, we, we can we can ask him well <laughs> the next time i see him yeah <laughs> we can and we can tell him but um how did you i mean you're you um paint ann arbor in a very very fondly um in the book did you did that come from your experience visiting on your book tour for your first book? Or? Well, you know, I only had like five hours the first time, uh-huh. and um, there was a tornado actually, yeah. and um, my reading had to be. I don't know. It was just amazing because instead of canceling the reading, we all went down into a basement, and then I had the great interview with T, and it just it was just one of these places where I was like, this place. It just seems so great, oh, and wow. everyone seems really time. friendly, and. <laughs> Kind of joyful uh-huh. and um, kind, and I just don't have enough time here to get to know the city better. Mm-hmm. And Deirdre, the um, the CEO of Mammoth's assistant in the book, is someone who's kind and maternal. And I thought, well, where where would she live? And I thought, well, Ann Arbor. <laughs> She's just the nicest person, and uh, <laughs> that's great. What basement were you in in the tornado? Now I need to know. It was it was the bookshop. The bookshop, um, yeah. yeah. Yeah, cool. Yeah, yeah. It wasn't even a, like, you know, it was just a bottom floor. Yeah. yeah. Um, well, n- nice references there to uh, to our hometown. Um, before we wrap up our hour, I would love to know if you uh, would share with us what you're reading these days and then what you're writing. Sure. So, oh gosh, reading. Um, so many things. I used to be very, you know, one book 
one book girl and I don't I think it's you know I get sent galleys now so I have so many things on my side table so just yesterday I did an event and I picked up Danny Shapiro's Hourglass her latest Mm -hmm. memoir which I haven't started yet but I'm excited to I have another um, I have a galley of The Immortalist by Chloe Benjamin Um, Mm -hmm. I have um, my friend Dee Foy's a forthcoming novel that I'm reading called Absolutely Golden. Um, Mm. And I'm reading, I know this is a little nuts because I'm reading a lot of books. Um, um, I'm reading Under the Glacier by an Icelandic man whose name I'm going to butcher, so I'm I'm not going to try, but it's called Under the Glacier. And I just finished Eat, Pray, Love because I went on a trip to Rhode Island recently for a book event and completely forgot my luggage. Okay. And I, I, that means I also forgot all my clothing. And I, so uh. I went to the Salvation Army and I got an outfit and I, I got a paperback. And I, I just read Eat, Pray, Love, um, which, which was quite charming. And um, God, what else and is I'm available? Not home, so I'm not yeah. looking at my – and then I'm reading yeah. Juna Barnes' Nightwood. Um Okay, I think that's... So you, you read extensive. fiction and memoir. Is the, is, um, is the Icelandic yeah. book nonfiction? Is, huh? is the Icelandic book nonfiction? No, 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 it's fiction. Oh, it's fiction. Um, yeah. yeah. I'm, I'm just curious. Uh, it sounds like you're, you're not reading about the tech industry and about oh, uh, God, the no. future no. and all the things that, uh, that bubble up in your book, uh, which is interesting. Oh, and then I, I should mention, I have, I'm about to go on a vacation, so I have... I'm really looking forward to reading Salt Houses by Hala Alan um, while I'm on vacation. Um, yeah, that's that's what I'm reading. Um, Tell us what you're writing. We have a few minutes left, and uh, I'd love to know, are you at work on another novel? Yeah, I, well, I, I don't know if it's a novel. I, I hope it's a novel, because if it's a novella, my agent's going to throw <laughs> me into the street. But... Um, I'm 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 really trying to work on something that's slim, um, and I'm adapting my chapbook notes from Mexico. I've yeah. always wanted to turn that into something larger, and it takes place in Mexico. So I spent about a month this winter in Mexico um, researching, um, I'm driving around, listening to Spanish CDs, trying to learn <laughs> Spanish, and. Um, it might be historical. Uh, there's a lot of maybes that I'm trying not to think too much about. You, you don't have to get, give it away or, or yeah. decide now, but um, yeah, we'll, yeah. But so we'll I'm, look I'm, for that. I was in the research. I was researching, researching, and then I did a lot of drafts trying to find voice and point mm-hmm. of view. I wasn't quite sure how many voices there would be or um, what point of view to write it from. And right now I'm kind of on a tear with a voice that feels really right but it's a little scary because it feels so right and it's been such a pleasure to write that that's the good stuff that's gotta, well, that's gotta usually, be but i don't I, it's just traumatizing how like i've written you know a couple things now and every time i start to write something new it seems to be the same terrible thing where i write a draft and i'm like this is it this is it it's just going to go straight to press and you know three years later and you know, 42 drafts later it's not even the same book like the touch started out as a book about dressage ah. <laughs> horses like a, it, yeah it, like a horse book yeah, yeah. and i don't I, I think there's one reference uh, yeah to i can't remember a horse therapy in the book in that one. Yeah. so it was about yeah. it was like 87,000 words reduced to one. 
<laughs> it's traumatizing, as you said. Yeah, yeah. We're, I mean, I, I, you know, I, <laughs> people, I laugh when people are like, so is there any material that didn't make it into the book? I'm like, oh my God. Yeah, <laughs> many roughly, books you worth. know, 900,000 words. Um. <laughs> yes, many more. Yeah. Um, Courtney, Mom, what a pleasure to have you join us today on Living Writers. We're going to close out uh, the show with Joni Mitchell and say thank you again so much. Hope to talk oh, to you soon. my pleasure. a chance that was just a dream some of us had still a lot of lines to see but i wouldn't want to stay here it's too old and cold and settled in its ways here all the california california coming home i'm gonna see the folks i dig i'll even kiss a sunset pig california coming home Bienvenidos. You are listening to WCBN-FM Ann Arbor. Está escuchando WCBN-FM Ann Arbor. Bienvenidos a la media hora norteña.